My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It's got to be one of the greatest lines in English hymns. Um, It really means nothing if you don't know what sin is. If you don't know the weight of sin, then Christ bearing your sin on the cross is meaningless. We've spent, uh, I don't know, about eight weeks in the book of Hosea, which talks a lot about sin. And we'll do it again today. And we do it because if you're in Christ, you know what Christ has done for you. And so a better understanding of your sin makes you worship and glorify Christ better. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 13. As we get another glimpse of the horrors of sin, its consequences. Hosea chapter 13. Let's read this chapter and then we'll dive in. Hosea 13 beginning in verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full." They were filled, and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper, Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. The little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women 
ripped open. This isn't necessarily a pleasant text to read. Again, not many are in Hosea, though we give our attention to it because it's God's inspired word. J.C. Ryle wrote this, We are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I am your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, and like Joab with an outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of Eden. Sin doesn't come to you telling you how horrible it is. We need God's word and the activity of the Spirit in our lives to show us how evil it is. And so we read the whole of Scripture because it tells us the whole truth, all of it. And we need to know all of it. It is our way, just as human beings, to make mountains out of molehills and to make molehills out of real mountains. We invert things. We get them backwards. We say sin is no big deal. We say it's no big thing. And yet we get it completely backwards. And so we listen to Scripture and all that it has to say to us to help us consider the seriousness of sin. It's not to be laughed at, mocked at, never minded or tucked away. If there were one way for me to show you the seriousness of sin... It would be to simply remind you of what it was said about the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew one twenty one, the Christmas verse. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who dwelled in eternity past, who shared all of the glory of God the Father, who possesses all might, all power, all omnipotence, all knowledge, descended and took on flesh for what purpose? To take away your sins and mine. And so sin is a big deal. That's why Jesus came, to deal with your sins. Another theologian says, For if the guilt of sin be so great that nothing can satisfy it but the blood of Jesus, and the filth of sin be so great that nothing can fetch out the stain thereof but the blood of Jesus, how great, how heinous, how sinful must the evil of sin be? As John Wesley said, Indeed, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. And so we take it seriously and we study a text like this to learn about the dangers and consequences of sin yet again. As we unpack this text, we'll see two relationships that sin has, and it's, it's namely its relationship to idolatry and its relationship to prosperity. And then we'll also see three things that sin brings, death, destruction, and vanity. Let's first consider sin's relationship to idolatry. Sin's relationship to idolatry. The basic desire of the sinful human heart is basically to kick God off the throne. It is to say that we don't want God to be in charge of our lives. Satan came with that temptation in the garden to Eve, basically promising her something that God had not said or to do something that God would not do. 
And she believed the lie and basically said that she would act as God, deciding good and evil. And so she took that place, and Adam did, and we all have as well. We determine good and evil for ourselves, and in doing so, we kick God off the throne. And so sin, at its core, is an idolatrous activity to erect something in the place of God that is not God. Sin is trying to kill us with death, and our sin is also trying to kill God. It's trying to get rid of him, to wipe him out. And we can take that quite literally because when God took on flesh, it's exactly what we did to him. We sought to destroy him. The almost constant accusation throughout this book of Hosea has been that Israel is guilty of idolatry, and it equates that with adultery. It equates idolatry with adultery. It is like a wife departing from her faithful husband to go after other lovers. That is the same story that plays out in our lives as we abandon God and go after other things that are not God and worship those instead of the one true God. And so the whole theme of Hosea is built on that idea of adultery. Israel left their God, Yahweh, for other gods, and in so doing committed spiritual adultery. When we think of idols, we think of those pieces of metal and stone that are shaped into some image, and they're effectively nothing. You can pick them up, you could use them as a football, you could use them as a doorstop, you can use them as a paperweight. I mean, they're effectively nothing. Idols are the physical manifestations of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, Paul comments on this. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And so while there may be a, a physical display of an idol, a horse or a cow, a Buddha or a, just a, um, a statue or a temple, those things may physically exist, but they're not God. They don't really represent God. They're just the product of our imagination. And that's the basic problem with idols. Idols can only go as far as the human mind can go. They can only go as far as we can go. They can only think as high as we can think. And they can only be as beautiful as we can conceive. And they can be only as good as we think of goodness is. And so they take you only as far as man can go. It's a big problem with idols because we can't go too far. I don't know how wide the universe is. It's zillions of light years. Uh, we've made it to the moon, which is a huge accomplishment, but we certainly haven't made it much beyond that. Humans cannot go too far, and certainly we have not found the door to heaven. We do not have thoughts as lofty as God's thoughts. We can't think as high as he can think. We can't define goodness as well as he can. And so idolatry always falls short because it only goes as far as idols can go. It's only as far as man's imagination can go. Chapter 13, verse 2. 
says, now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. In one sense, Hosea commends the skill of the craftsmen who make the idols. They do a good job. They were really good at what they did. They could craft a cow or a horse or a statue of a fish god, and it would look amazing. It would be a piece of art. It would be the best human craftsmanship that you could see. It was all that they could pour in them, into them. I mean, human ingenuity is pretty impressive, the things that we can come up with. We've come up with ways to communicate with each other, even if we're not in the same room, ways to see each other, even if we're halfway across the world. We have invented ways to get to the moon, to land in another world. It's mind-blowing. It's craftsmanship. Spectacular. You've got a little device in your pocket that can look up anything you want to know about any subject in the world. If you want to find out what a tick bite looks up, you can find out that in five seconds. You want to know anything about anything in the world, you can figure it out in about five seconds. The accomplishment of man is really amazing from our point of view. That's what Hosea is pointing out. They multiplied these metal images. They multiplied their ability and the ingenuity of man, idols skillfully made of their silver. They would manufacture them, and it would come out the next big thing, the next nice idol, the most beautiful next trinket that you could have for your very own worship. It was amazing. But the real commentary on it, it is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Oh, on the outside, these, idol- these idols looked beautiful and a piece of art. But what they brought along with them was atrocious. They were calling on the people who worshipped them to make human sacrifices, to offer up their children to Baal, a son or a daughter. And in their worship of this fake god, the pinnacle of human accomplishment, they would lose that which was most precious to them, their son or their daughter, as they offered them to the fake God. And the description of what these humans were doing as they offer these sacrifices or as they worship this fake God and they go after the pinnacle of human technology, the thing that they were actually doing, it's described as kissing calves. That's what This is summarized as idol worship comes down to going up to a metal statue of a cow and laying a big smooch on it. That's what idol worship is equivalent to. That's the way Hosea looks at it. Those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. In the quest to supplant God, we replace him with the best that man can come up with. And in the end, the best that man can come up with in the worship of those things is kissing calves. Oh, make no mistake, our society is infatuated with ourselves. We're infatuated with the things that we can come up with, the drugs that we can manufacture, the technology we can conceive of. And it can be used for good. It's not all idolatrous use. But when it dominates our life and steals our worship away from God, then it's like we're kissing calves. When we spend more time with our phones than with God, 
It's like we're kissing a calf. We replace God with the best that we can come up with, and all we get is the best that we can come up with. And that leaves us woefully short of what God has to offer us. And so sin just leads us down this idolatrous path that leads us to nothing better than kissing calves. So sin is related to idolatry, trying to supplant God. Sin is also related to prosperity. Sin and prosperity. In verse 4, it says, I am the Lord your God, who from the land of Egypt you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. In other words, God reminds the people of Israel as to the beginning of their relationship. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the land of the wilderness, a place where there was no water and no food. He provided for them. He knew them there. It was the place where they knew God as Savior, as Rescuer, Redeemer, the one who rescued them from Egypt. They came out of slavery. And they would have known God as the one who provided everything. Redemption, manna, water, leadership. He's the one who provided everything for them. Verse 6 says, But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. Sometimes on Christmas morning or a birthday in our home, uh, we will give a gift to our children, and they will shred open the paper, and it just leaves this wrapping paper tornado across the house, and they will be enraptured with the gift that they get, and they go off and they play with it immediately, and they're just so thrilled by that, and there's something that mom and dad have to say, what have you forgotten? Not to clean up. We do that later. You forgot to say thank you. You forgot to say thank you. They're so enthralled with the gift that they've forgotten the giver of the gift. And the gift becomes all important and they forget the one who gave it to them. God had put Israel in a position when he brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness that all they would know are the things that God had given them. And there was nowhere else that anything had come to them except from God. All the gold and silver that came out of Egypt was from God allowing them to plunder the Egyptians. The redemption from slavery was from God. The manna was from God. The water was from God. Moses was raised up by God. The parting of the Red Sea was from God. They leave this trail of wrapping paper everywhere. And they get so enthralled with the gift and their heart gets lifted up and they forget to say thank you. When they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. How can you receive an amazing gift from someone and forget the one who gave it to you? Not only did they forget the one that gave it to them, they became proud about the very gifts that they had, especially as they go into the land. They become proud about the very gifts that they possessed in the land. What is so wrong with our hearts that not only do we forget the God who gave us all that we have, 
but we also become proud about the very things he has given us, like we are the ones who generated those things in our lives. If you have an inkling of pride in your life, if you have even an ounce of it, it is completely inappropriate. What do you have that has not been given to you? You didn't think yourself up. You didn't give birth to yourself. You didn't give yourself your body, your mind, the ability to work, your spiritual gifts. All of it is from him. And yet you see the relationship between sin and prosperity. Oh, sin wants prosperity, and then it gets it, and when it gets it, it gets proud about what it got. Sin from beginning to end. Our sinful hearts are so twisted that we take the gifts of God, forget him, and become proud about the very gifts that we possess. Sin is related to idolatry in that it supplants God from the throne. Sin is related to prosperity in that it takes his gifts, forgets him, and becomes proud about the gifts that we have received. Well, sin brings some things as a result. Sin brings death. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings vanity. Sin has led us to try to replace and forget God. It does not bring what we hoped for in the end. We really don't get to kick God off the throne. He's still there. Nobody's taken him away from where he reigns. God has not forgotten the gifts that he's given you. He remembers. And so our sin does not accomplish what we desire, namely the making of our name and the tearing down of God's. But it brings death, it brings destruction, and it brings vanity. Sin brings death. So many people do not realize this, but if you've been in the church, you know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin brings death. It's so essential that we understand the world that we live in. And our world is full of death. And the reason that there is death is because there is sin. Look at verse 1 of Hosea 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. That refers to a time when that northern tribe of Israel, the prominent tribe, spoke and it was respected, it was revered, it had a place of prominence among the other tribes. He was exalted in Israel, had a position where he was respected, but he incurred guilt through Baal, went after idolatry, and what happened? He died. Because of the idolatry, guilt came. Because guilt came, there's consequences, and the consequence is death. Now this text is referring to the death of a nation or the death of a tribe. It's referring to the death of Ephraim. And in this case, it can refer to a whole nation. The death of Ephraim was really the death of a political entity, a military entity. There would come a time where Ephraim just ceased to function as a tribe of Israel and as a kingdom, and it would be stripped away of all of its role of responsibility, all of its governance, all of its military might, and it would be left with nothing, no rule, no domain. It would be transplanted from its location in Israel over to Assyria, and the people are scattered, and there is no central government, no central military, no possibility of defending yourself. Effectively, Ephraim died. 
they're over. It's been observed that nations have life cycles. They're born, they grow strong, they grow old and weak, and then they die. This happened to ancient Israel. It doesn't happen just because that's the way things go. A lot of people think that death is in the world because that's just the circle of life. You're born, you live, you die, that's it. It's the way it is, always has been, always will be. And the fact of the matter is, it's not the way it always has been. It's the way it is. It's not the way it always will be. Death entered the world through sin. We live in that time, but there will become a day when God says to death, you are no more, and he'll get rid of it. But we've seen over the history of the world, not only do individuals die, but nations die. Sodom and Gomorrah wiped out. The Roman Empire, gone. Ancient Greece, gone. Persian, Persia, Babylon. They lived and they died. The USA, well, who's to say? It's alive now. It does not guarantee its ongoing existence. We must be clear that sin brings ruin to a nation. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. God declares what he does in Psalm 107.33 and 34. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. God can bring the ruin of a nation. He also brings the death of individuals. The reason we are born, grow strong, grow old, and die, namely the reason we die is because of sin. We're born in sin, we live in sin, and if we die in sin, then we experience eternal death. Our physical death happens because our spiritual death has already happened. We're born spiritually dead. As today say, we are separated from God. We don't possess a relationship with him that is one that is good and right and connected with him. We live a sinful life. We flee from him and we experience spiritual death, which is separation from God and without hope in this world. Sin brings death. He incurred guilt through Baal and died. Sin brings destruction as well. Sin brings destruction If you want to see the devastation of sin, if you want to see the effects it has had, you just have to look at our world. All of the moral evil, all of the natural evil exists in this world because sin is in this world. It is not the way God originally made the world, like the Garden of Eden, where there was peace and harmony. Sin entered the world, and it brought death, and it also brought destruction. But we cannot avoid the fact that sin is not just, in one sense, a natural consequence. And what I mean by that is, it's not as though you you stub your toe and you feel pain, and so you sin and therefore you die. There is a cause and effect level to, to it, but we have to make one step further And what we have to realize is that God is not just passive in bringing about sin and destructive in the world. He is the one who has decreed it would be that way. 
And so when we say that there is destruction in the world, that there is death in the world, it is because God has ordained that to be the consequence for sin in this world. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God acted decisively in bringing death into the world. He said, in the day you will eat of it, you shall surely die. He is the one who declared that. Not Adam, not Eve, not Satan. That was God's declaration. He is the judge of all the earth, and so he is the one who brings that judgment. He is the one who declared what would happen. He cursed the serpent. He's the one who increased pain and childbearing. He's the one who cursed the ground so it produced thorns and thistles. He is the one who did that. He's the one who decreed that. Verse 9, we're almost shocked when it says, He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Most ultimately, if we are to be biblical, we must recognize that judgment issues from God. And if you spend a few moments thinking about it, you don't really want it any other way. If you know that judgment deserves to be in this world, you ought not to want anyone else than God administering that judgment. And here's why. Who else is set up to execute right judgment in this universe? Who else has the power, the wisdom, and the ability to administer the perfect judgment for sin? Who else can do right in all circumstances, in all situations? I think that overall our justice system in the United States is a decent one. I'd rather be here than a lot of other places in the world. But... I don't think anyone should presume that our justice system is 100% right in all of its conclusions. I don't think it is a safe assumption to think that everybody in jail ought to be or everybody not in jail ought not to be. I don't think that's a safe assumption. You'd be pretty foolish if you think that way. It's an imperfect system. Is everyone who is serving time serving the right amount of time? Is every judgment made in our justice system right? Of course not. And yet we want justice. Who's going to give it? Who's going to do it? Well, the judge of all the earth will do it. And he will do what is right. He will make the right decision. He will make people serve for the right length of time. He will administer the right and proper judgment for the, right, for the sin and how it's appropriate to that. This is the basic conviction that we must have about God, that his judgments are right. If you don't have that, then this world, this universe is just in moral chaos. There's no standard. There's no ultimate right and wrong. There's no ult- any ultimate dispensation of justice to this world. But God comes in right justice. He comes in a ferocious way as well. Look at verse 7. After describing Israel as a a fattened calf that goes and grazes to the full and then forgets God, it says in verse 7, So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. 
see the ferocity of God. Of course, God's not a lion. He's like a lion. He's not a bear. He's like a bear. He's not a leopard. He's like a leopard. These are anthropomorphisms that kind of display an attribute of God in some way that we can better understand. And so he is like a leopard who is waiting to pounce on its prey, or like a bear robbed of its shika, of its cubs, ready to destroy those who took away her cubs. God's justice, although it is righteous, does not mean it will lack a ferocity to it. God's the one who is ultimately responsible for the administration of judgment and justice in this universe. We ought to fear him. We don't take this lightly. I think our natural response would be to say, I don't like this. I don't want to believe this. And so we kind of shut this portion of our Bible and we turn to those pages um, that have a little bit more love in them. But we have to deal with God's word as it is given to us. Who are we to decide what's true and what's false? We stand under its authority and we accept the God who is rather than the God who we want him to be. As soon as we start turning pages of our Bible away from our eyes, we become idolaters because we make God to be something other than he is. He's the one who speaks. He is the one who declares himself like a lion. He is the one who declares himself to be like a leopard. It is his description that we accept. Sin brings destruction. Sin also brings vanity. Back in verse 3, Because Israel has committed idolatry, it says, Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Because of sin, if we're left to ourselves, we effectively become nothing. These are sobering descriptions. Morning mist, the dew, the chaff, the smoke... Those are all things that you might recognize for a moment, but then they're gone. The morning mist goes away as soon as the sun is up, along with the dew. Chaff is that bit that surrounds the grain that you would thresh out, and you'd toss the grain up into the air, and the heavier grain would fall to the ground, and all the chaff, all the stuff that you don't want to eat, gets swept away by the wind. You don't think about it again or smoke going out of window. It might make beautiful patterns, but it's gone like a wisp. God's not using this kind of descriptive language to describe smoke and mist and dew. He's using it to describe our lives, or I should say the lives of Israel. That's what they are like. They are gone away. Few people in this world don't want their lives to count. We all want our life to be substantial, to have some substance to it. I just ran across this quote from Jim Elliot. He said, God, I pray thee, light the idle sticks of my life, and I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. 
I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. It's a man who desires a full life, a substantial life. And I would suggest that most people don't want their life to be insignificant. They want it to count for something. They want it to matter. They want it to be remembered. They want it to have actually accomplished something. One day, we will all stand before the Lord. We'll have a personal audience with him. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And the point of this text of Hosea 13.3 is that many lives will be tested, and all it will be found to contain is chaff, mist, or smoke. And the desire for substance in life is just vaporized in a moment because life was meaningless. Why was it meaningless? Because they kissed calves. That's why it's meaningless. When you replace the only one who has ultimate meaning with something that is frivolous and idolatrous, then you've sacrificed the only meaning you could ever have, namely as it relates to you, to God. So many of us want to be commended and and remembered for our promotions, our medals, our children, our skills, our music, our sports, our house, our cars, All those things will be tested without wanting. Your whole life summed up. All your efforts, all your energy, all your toils, all your pains, all your joys, all your happiness, all your sorrows, all rolled up into the bundle of those 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years put to test before the Lord. It's just a mist. What is a life that counts? You remember our Lord Jesus Christ? He was tempted by Satan, brought up by Satan to see all of the kingdoms of the world, and Satan offered them to him. You can have all of these. For us, from human eyes, that would look like, man, that life counts. He had all of it. And Jesus rejected it. And the remainder of his life was spent just losing more and more until the day when he went to the cross and he died on the cross and he didn't even die with the clothes on his back. And yet, if you were to identify one life that meant something, it has to be Jesus. His life meant something. It meant something so significant that God said that he would give him the name above every name even though he didn't even die with a shirt on his back, his life counted, and it's for this reason, because his will was to do the will of his Father who sent him. His whole life was summed up by his relationship to his Father. If you want your life to count, to matter for anything, it has to be a life lived in right relationship with God. 
You know this poem. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I don't want my life to be a vapor. There's a note of exceptional hope in verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings death. Sin brings vanity. And if you know your heart, you know that you're just entrenched in the sin. You can't get yourself out of it. You're just locked into it by yourself. And you know the punishment for it is death. And you know if you die in your sins, the punishment for it is eternal death. And you know that your life will not have counted for anything. And you just can't get yourself up from the dead. You can't do it yourself. In verse 14 from Hosea 13, it's just so shocking that some commentators don't even take it as a promise of hope because it just seems splashed in the middle of a judgment context. But I suggest to you that the way our God works is that he just kind of splashed hope into a judgment context. He did that when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross, being punished for sin, and then he splashes this hope in the midst of judgment when he raises Jesus from the dead. It almost comes out of nowhere. And when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, there was a promise that is given to those who acknowledge their own inability to raise themselves, to those who have the inability to do anything about their sins, for those who will cast their sight not on themselves but on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will receive the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three says, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.
not in vain because you're in the Lord. And being in the Lord means that you have a Savior who went to the tomb and came out of it again. And he left in the tomb the sting of death and the victory of death. He left it there, and he came to life again, victorious over sin and death. So that your life can count. And so we're offered Jesus Christ, the one who takes away sin and the one who offers you a non-vain life because he raised from the dead. Well, praise be to our God who gives us a message that is severe on judgment but significant in hope. Look to Christ, not to yourself, not to your weaknesses, not to your sin. Look to Christ and find all that you need in him. Live for him and you will find judgment taken care of, vanity removed, destruction taken away, and eternal life and significance given to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you rarely leave us far in your scripture uh, from a message of hope. We thank you that our Lord and Savior has come and he has given to us a, a sure hope that will come to pass. We will be raised with him. Oh Lord, let us not live futile lives that are devoted to sin. I pray, Father, that you would direct us to live a life of significance for Christ. We cast all of our thoughts on him, all of our cares and our anxieties. Even our fear of judgment would be removed as we taste of the love that you have for us through Christ Jesus. Oh God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Lord, thank you for this time together as your people today. May you go with us this week and help us to live a life that honors you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, We have a time of fellowship down the hall. Lord bless you, and uh, please join us as we can enjoy one another's company. And Bible study tonight, 6 o'clock, if you want to come back.